If you'll remain standing and grab a pew bulletin or, I mean, a pew Bible or on your uh, cellular device and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. You can find that on page 858 or 981 in the pew Bible there. And let's remember a bit as you're turning there where we have been so far in Peter's letter. We have been hearing loads from this apostle, the same apostle that shows up in the four Gospels, letters to believers in modern-day Turkey. We said that he's encouraging them, among other things, to set their hope fully, to set their hope fully on the grace that will come to them when Jesus returns, having had their lives changed in the present on the basis of what Christ has done in the past. They are now to live future-oriented lives. So let's read together from God's Word here in 1 Peter chapter 2. And these two short verses here, what they lack in length, they make up for in punch, I promise you. Let's read together. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among, among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Brothers and sisters, what do we know about God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Amen. Will you pray with me, asking the Lord to help us today? Father, Son, and Spirit, we ask that you would now open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts. You would, along with what the psalmist has said to us, that you would send forth your light and your truth. Would you send us light, shining forth on your word, opening our minds to see life as it really is meant to be. And would you, O oh Lord, send heat as well, that our hearts might be stirred. Like the men on the road to Emmaus, whose hearts burned within them as they saw Jesus unfolded in the Scriptures. Would you be pleased this morning to do that among us? We ask, O oh Lord, that for those of us who are feeling downcast, whose hearts are troubled, that you would today, O oh Lord, bring hope. And those of us, O oh Lord, who come in here knowing you for quite some time, excited to be your son or daughter, that you would flame, Lord, that love. For those of us who have doubts, that you would meet them. For those of us, Lord, uh, who just need a fresh word of hope, we pray that you would meet them today in your word. Lord, wherever we are at, we come before you this morning longing to hear from you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, something I'd like to do this morning is to give uh, the children in our midst a few things to sort of listen for as we go through uh, the sermon this morning. It's a practice that uh, we do at Trinity Prez, and it might be something that would be helpful for you all. So I'm going to give you three things, kids. I don't care how old you are, kids. You can be an 80-year-old kid if you'd like to be today. But uh, three things I'd love for you to listen for throughout the sermon. The first is, I want you to listen to what an exile is. You're going to hear me say the word exile and sojourner over and over again today. I want you to try to listen to what that word means. Secondly, I want you to listen to a story of snake skin. Yes, you heard that right, snake skin. And then lastly, the third thing I want you to listen for is the story about an amazing boss. An amazing boss. So there you have it. What is an exile? Snake skin. And then an amazing boss. Well, as we begin this morning, I'd like to remind us that we all know that 
appearances can be deceiving, right? You know what I mean, right? Just because something looks like something, it doesn't mean that it actually is that thing. Several years ago, a brilliant series of commercials ran that put this reality on display. Here it is. Let me see if I can set the scene for you, right? A nuclear reactor is about to melt down. And then a man with dark-rimmed glasses, with a short white sleeve button-down shirt with a pocket protector, walks up to the board there where the engineers are, and he quickly provides orders how to avert the, uh, the meltdown. The men around the controls are waiting on pins and needles, following the man's advice. Close the flow chambers. Activate the hydrogen recombiners. Do it. Well, it works. Disaster is averted. And one engineer stands up and hugs this unfamiliar man and says through his joy, Are you new to the team? And the man replies, Oh no, I'm just with the tour group bites his donut and says, but I did stay, where? At a Holiday Inn Express last night, right? Well, it's humorous, but the point is clear. There can be a real disconnect, right, between what one appears to be on the surface and who one really is. And what is comical to us is actually of the utmost importance for the Apostle Peter. Let me see if I can explain. You might remember last week when Lee Hall took us through this wonderful string of indicatives, these these labels about who we are in Christ, a a treasured possession, a, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, they all belong to the Lord, Peter says. This is who you are. You are now a people receiving the richest mercy. This is who they are at their core. And Peter assumes that since they have been born again into this living hope that there is a new ought, a new should, a new ethic that ought to characterize the entirety of their lives. And then in our verses that we read this morning, Peter begins to warn his readers about how that identity can be compromised. In short, it is to have our way of life, as it were, be in contrast to who we really are. And in Peter's eyes, this is profoundly problematic, not only in his original readers, but in us as well. So therefore, this morning, Peter urges us in these verses towards congruence, towards congruence in a broad stroke, right? He's he's urging us to find a similarity or to find togetherness in this between who we are and how we live. And this is a reminder we all need, right? Because all of us know what it's like to live lives inconsistent with who we really are. This morning, Peter launches into the body of his letter with broad categories that will be fleshed out in particular ways over the next few weeks. And in these two verses, he's instructing Christians on how to live faithfully in difficult social, cultural, and moral circumstances. And he reminds them and us But since God has in fact made us distinct people, we ought to live distinct lives. That's what we're going to hear about this morning. And Peter is going to show us, therefore, three ways to live distinctly in this world. Here they are. First, he's going to tell us, remind us, show us how to live as. How to live as. Secondly, how to live among. And then thirdly, how to live for. 
To live as, to live among, and to live for. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So if you would, turn your eyes with me in that first verse. Chapter 2, verse 11. Take a look with me there. He continues what he begins in verse 9 and 10 when he says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. There it is. This idea of sojourning and exiles. It's something that we see even back in verse 1 where he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ in chapter 1, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Who they are, Peter says, is exiles. That is the new identity with which Peter's readers find themselves. Jews, Gentiles together in this new person, these new people that he calls exiles, who have been born again into a living hope. You see, in Peter's mind, if you do not recognize who you are, you will not know, and you won't have the resources precisely precisely because you don't know how to live. So Peter, as we saw calls them exiles and sojourners. Now, one of the things that commentators point out about this verse, it's very impressive, is that this is the exact same language that Abraham himself uses about himself back in Genesis chapter 3, chapter 23, verse 4. Abraham, when sojourning in the new land that God has brought him out of and into, he's speaking to the Hittite leadership. And he says this, he says which... He says this about himself. He says, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. In other words, after 60 plus years of living in, the, in that land, he still did not view himself as having reached his home. Now, this helps us to understand what a sojourner or an exile is. They were people who were strangers in the land where they lived. Let that sink in. Strangers in the land where they lived. Exiles did not hold citizenship within the country where they were. Therefore, they did not receive all the benefits and all of the blessings of the country they were in. And, And they were not expected to hold to the norms and the values of that dominant culture. So why in the world would Peter say all of this about his readers and by extension us? Here's why. Because Peter sees where our true home is. He knows where our better and true home is. It's not here. So he calls us exiles in light of that. You see, living as exiles and sojourners is not something that Peter is upset about. He doesn't say, let's live like sticks in the mud. There's our rallying cry. Let's be about culture wars. There we go, let's do it. No, he doesn't say any of that. In fact, he just states it as a matter of fact. He doesn't say it to be reactionary. He assumes that this goes along with what it means to be a Christian. We don't seek necessarily to be marginal or to be marginalized, but we are not surprised when Christians are. This is more profound, brothers and sisters, than I think we may know. I want you to think with me for a moment, if you've ever traveled to another country, you likely will have experienced the disconnect between the country that you're in and your home country and the land that you are from. Some of the values and norms will be what? Different from yours, right? This this, uh, illustration breaks down, obviously, but you'll see what I mean. I remember spending a couple of months in the country of New Zealand many, many years ago, 
And one of the things that I was struck by is I would go to the, uh, the grocery store or to the mall or to, you know, just any normal place in public, I realized that due to this being a profoundly beach culture, everybody walked around everywhere barefoot. Now, could you imagine walking to the mall without your shoes on? I suppose some of you would be like, that would be awesome. Um, but I was a stranger as I walked around here and clip-clop, 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 right? I looked around and everybody was barefoot and I stood out because I just had shoes on. Well, you think you can begin to see the parallels there, right? That you're going to experience and, some take and know some things differently from your home country. The point is this, that Peter is making the point that those who follow Jesus should not be surprised when they find themselves out of step in the world around them. Why? Because they know of their better home. We ought, as Peter says, to feel like exiles, even in our country of birth. Why? Because our true home is elsewhere, in the new heavens, in the new earth, with the triune God forever, right now. This means that you live with an ache of sorts. You know what I mean by ache? It is what C.S. Lewis talks about in his desire and his longing for a better country. He says this, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Our true country is one where every last tear is wiped from our eyes, where pain and sorrow are not even a memory, and where racism and injustice and death are known no more. And Peter is saying, I want you to live on the basis of knowing your better home. Think about it like this. Some of you return year and year, place after place, to a favorite location. And I want to kind of flip the script a little bit. You know the restaurants, right? there in that place. You say, oh, I can't wait to go back to City X where we can eat food at restaurant Y. My wife and I have a place like this in Mexico and we're able to go. We love it. I love going to this one place. Sadly, it's gone now, so I don't know what I'm supposed to do, right? I have to wait for heaven, I suppose. But the point is, is this. The taste of something, the experience of something, is brought into the present and it shapes your life now. That, dear friends, is what it means to live as an exile. To live as a sojourner. To live as someone who knows where their true home is. And this is not presently it. The point he's making is, is that this absolutely shapes, it absolutely shapes and reorients our lives. To live as exiles, you see, is not pessimism. It is not resignation. On the contrary, dear ones, it is robust hope. God wants us to see that, we be, that when we begin the Christian life and when we daily continue in it, and that this is our great hope. In other words, Peter is getting at this. He's getting at our expectations in and for life. No matter what culture you're in, ancient Rome or late modern United States, there will be a burr in your saddle, so to speak, a rock in your shoe, highlighting the dissonance in a thousand different ways where you live presently. And secondly, the quiet salient longing for our real and true home. Peter is saying, if you want to live faithfully in the world, you, you must do so out of who you are. 
you live as exiles and sojourners. Remember this, that this is the buttressing for congruence in your life. In light of this, I think it would be easy to read Peter, right? And to think this, well, we're just supposed to pull away from the world. That's what we ought to do. Have nothing to do with it. And surprisingly, Peter just doesn't let us off the hook that easily. In fact, he says quite the opposite. He is not only telling us to live as sojourners and exiles, but to live among, to live among people who view and see the world radically different than you do. What do I mean? Let's take a look back at the text here as Peter shows us, secondly, how to live among. You'll see it there in the back half of verse 11, the first part of chapter 12. You'll notice that Peter says this in chapter 12. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles. That's the key phrase there, honorable. Peter assumes... When he uses the word, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that sojourners and exiles' lives are actually going to be lived in the context, in and around, in everyday dirt and soil, among people who do not agree with us, who do not like us, and who just view the world differently. We're going to see that Peter's going to call us to love those people. In just a second, we're going to go there. But the point I want you to see now is that he's establishing the fact that what it means to live faithfully in this world is to live presently. Now, he shows us two things. Two things. He first of all shows us how to, how, as it were, how to live among the Gentiles by one, abstaining. Abstaining. Do you see that there in the back half of verse 11? He says to abstain from the desires of the flesh. Peter isn't necessarily talking about our bo- like bodily things like food and sex and, and things of this world. That's not what he's talking about when he talks about desires of the flesh. You see, when he's using the word flesh there, he is referencing an out-of-whack desire system that comes from our old natures, our old selves, out of which, he tells us, we have been born again. In other words, desiring, living after the flesh, desires of the flesh, happens when we make really, really, really good things, ultimate things, that God has given to us into the most important things. Let me see if I can give you an illustration. Kids, Have you ever seen what happens when a snake sheds its skin? Right? Its old layer gets peeled off, and usually you can find these things out in the woods somewhere, and you see the outer layer of its skin representing something that it's emerged out from. When Peter uses the word flesh, he is talking about the flesh in that way for us. That skin is dead. It serves no purpose anymore. It does not have any sort of reign, rule, governance, or authority over the snake anymore. And Peter is saying, in the same way that we have shed an old skin, as it were, that by being born again into a living hope, we have been born out of those old desires. And Peter is saying, in light of that, in light of that, you live differently. You live in accord with who you really are. 
You see, this is what this means, that kids and adults alike really are tempted to let that old self drive the way we live our lives. And Peter is trying to tell us, fight that, wage war against that, get get away from that, abstain, abstain. That's what he's getting at. But secondly, he shows us how how we're to live among the Gentiles. And it comes in verse 12. Now he uses in the ESV, the word is by keeping, but another translation you might find the word maintain. I like maintain because it rhymes with abstain, okay? So same word there, abstaining and maintaining. Peter is saying this, that we are to live among the non-Christian world by maintaining a way of life. You see that conduct there, that word conduct. That literally means a way of life, a way of living, an ethic, if you will. And what's amazing about it is that Peter says this. He says, he says keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Now that's a great word, but it actually is much more full than like stately and, and, and sort of straight-laced. The idea there is compelling, good, beautiful, true, attractive. Peter is saying, this is the way that I want you to live in the world. This is the way that I want you to live among people who do not share the same values, the same code of ethics as you do. To live in a way that is attractive. He wants us to live in a way that the everyday warp and woof of our lives will be noticed and be sought after by those who are even against us. Listen, do you know what this means then, brothers and sisters? It means that our lives should always be marked by a degree or a level of tension. I want you to put your thinking caps on for just a moment, okay? So, if you've been asleep, I totally get it. I totally get it. But if you'll wake up for just a moment, here's what I would like to help us to see today. The idea of living in tension. On the one hand, what we've just heard, we're to live as exiles and strangers. So, we won't live like the world around us in how we treat one another, and how we spend our money, how we spend our time, how we use our bodies, and so on. We won't live like that. We live differently. We are exiles, and so we know where our true home is. But on the other side of that tension, we are not free to pull away from the world we are supposed to be distinct from. There will always be, as one commentator puts it, I love this phrase, a differentiated engagement. Or as another writer, James Hunter, says it, he says, we must live faithfully present lives. Or if you like Jesus' words the best, we're supposed to be salt, what? Of the earth. Or light of the world. So there's that tension there together. I think at some point some of us might be thinking, well, Ryan, well and good, do you know the sort of culture that we live in? Have you not seen that it is so hostile to the gospel that it cares nothing about what the scriptures say? And I want to say, maybe, in certain pockets of the world. But I want to say this, that the the command to live faithfully present doesn't change one bit. And I think this is important because, in fact, sometimes we often hear this trumpeted that the Christian position in general is on the wrong side of history. And I actually want to say that it doesn't hold up. It just won't do. Let me see if I can explain why by looking at church history a little bit. You see, long ago, early distinctive Christian living 
we see this, that Peter was writing into a world that was at least as set against, if not more so, those who followed Christ than we are today. And yet, we have evidence that the early Christians, the first three centuries, which certainly included Peter's audience, lived lives, here it is, where where the surrounding culture found their way of life both comprehensible and distinct at the same time. Historian Larry Hurtado in his new book, Destroyer of the Gods, shows how distinctly Christian lives lived in the midst of a pagan, Gentile, Roman world, and how those cut new channels for the course of history. He cites an old ancient letter that was, you can go find it on Google if you want it. It's called the Epistle to Diognetus, which is probably written as early as 130 AD. And this is a letter answering false charges that someone had summoned saying that Christians live this way. And in response to that to that, those errant charges, this letter is written. And listen what's contained in it. The unknown author writes this. He tells about how Christians refuse to worship the many gods of the Roman Empire. So right there, that's the distinctive. That's the abstaining. But listen as well. Yet, they were not distinguished from the rest of humanity by country, language, or custom. In other words, Christians didn't have a, a certain language. They weren't bound to one ethnic people group. And that, the Roman culture saw that and says, that resonates with our culture. Secondly, how about this? Christians also followed local customs of dress and food and other ways of life that were very similar with the surrounding culture around it. And yet, they demonstrated the remarkable and admittedly unusual character of that citizenship. So there's the distinction. The case in point might be this. Christians did not practice, did not practice um, the, the, the practice that was often very, very common in the ancient Roman world of letting children die by exposure. If you gave birth to a young baby girl, probably wouldn't advance your claims in culture that, mo- that much. It was a normal thing to leave her out to pass away. And Christians were absolutely committed to never doing that. Do you see what I'm trying to highlight? How that tension, how that tension remains? We have both living as and living among together. That's what faithful Christian Christian living is like. Brothers and sisters, this is what it's trying to say. Early Christianity's ability to hold an important tension is what made it unique and contributed to its growth. And brothers and sisters, this is exactly what Peter is saying to us. That when you live distinct, beautiful lives among those who are different from you, you little by little turn the world upside down. I don't know about you, but isn't that compelling? I mean, that that's our task as Christians? To live in such a way that is radically distinct yet committed to the world around us? That's the missional task that Jesus has called us to. And that's where I'd like to turn lastly, this idea of mission, as we consider not only the living as, the living among, but thirdly, this living for. You see, a faithful living out of our identity will always include that we live among those who don't believe what we do, but he also shows us the purpose for which exiles and pilgrims live these beautiful lives. You see, what happens when love for neighbor consumes the Christian exile's heart? Well, you begin to live for an extraordinary purpose. 
Look with me there at the back half of verse 12. Peter says this, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, here it is, so that, that's in there, that's in, there in the Greek, the idea of a purpose, the purpose or result, so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In their book, Winsome Persuasion, authors Tim Yulhoff and Richard Langer tell the story of a British boy who was kidnapped by marauders, by pirates. The child eventually escapes and many years later went back to those who held him captive. Patricius was his name. Now you know him probably underneath the name of St. Patrick. And unlike the Egyptian monasteries, which were reclusive and in the desert, St. Patrick set up on the Green Isle of Ireland monasteries on the edges of towns to which he returned. As the authors note, Patrick arrived with 12 companions and a simple plan. He would approach a tribal chieftain to seek his conversion, or at least permission to form a community of faith adjacent to the tribal settlement. The team would then become involved in the life of the community, engaging them in conversation and acts of service such as mediating disputes and tending the sick. Those who were responsive would join the apostolic band and worship with them. And if God blessed the efforts, they would build a church. But when the group moved on, Patrick would leave a protege behind to serve this young fledgling church while taking one or two young people to join in planting a new church in another tribal settlement. This is a fantastic picture, I think, of living as, living among, and living lastly, living for. Living with this differentiated engagement. It means living with a purpose. One that Peter points out in verse 12. He says, I want you to live in such a way that Christians live in such a way that when those around you, when they see your lives, that because of those lives, they would come to glorify God. What would be the process by which they would do that? Peter says, the things, your lives, that they now speak evil against because they don't see, they don't understand, right? That they will be the very things that God uses to bring them to a saving knowledge of Himself. Now, I am not denying what the Scriptures and our standards say. It's not by our lives themselves that that automatically people see them and go, Jesus, I'm in. No, the Spirit still works. But it is what Paul gets at when he says, watch your what? Your life and your doctrine closely. Watch the character of your lives because the watching world sees it and you're meant to live in such a way that, that participates in God's amazing, great mission of drawing the nations to Himself. Right here, right here in McKinney. You see, this was the case for St. Patrick, and it's the same for you and me too. Why? Here's why. It's only and always ever been the way that God does it. Think back to Genesis chapter 12. He goes to a wandering Aramean named Abram. And he says, Abram, I want you to leave your country and go to a land that you've never known. I want you to be in exile. I want you to be a sojourner. And then I want you to live in such a way 
that when the world watches you, that they become blessed. In other words, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you so that, Genesis chapter 12, verse 4, that you will be a blessing to the world around you. I want you to live in such a way that you live that the people would come to know, come to know this great God, that who I am. The nations would look on your people, Abraham, and they would marvel at your lives. I will use your lives to draw the Gentiles to myself. Well, in Peter's day, in Peter's day, in our text today, those called out ones are the church, believers, exiles, and their purpose, a life of mission, is for others. In other words, the church, this is huge, the church doesn't merely do mission. The church is God's mission in the world. Mission isn't something that we pick up and do sometimes. Rather, mission is integral to your very identity as God's people. That's what Peter is saying. And the primary way that non-Christians will come to know the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is by the beauty that our lives display. To drive this home for a moment. I think this drives us to consider consider two things. One, do I really love God? Do I really love those people who believe and behave differently than I do, who are in and around my life? You must wrestle with that question. And I want to say this today, perhaps you're here and you're not a Christian, and you wonder how Christians ought to live on the full authority of the Scriptures from God Himself. We as Christians are called to love you who do not believe what we believe. That is sobering for all of us. But secondly, I think it points us to consider this as well. Do I live distinctly and attractively different lives with this sort of missional intentionality in mind? Yes, even knowing that those who are around us at first will not understand or agree with why we live the way we do. But with the hope that they one day will. Our lives are not about us. A word of encouragement for those who feel like they struggle in this area. God will give you the grace that you need. He will empower you and delights in so doing on this great and wonderful mission to make His name great. Talk with your neighbors. Take a walk with your dog and be intentional and say hi. Play in the yard with your children regularly. And welcome your neighbors into your life. I love what one pastor says. Receiving God's grace is free. Extending it to others is going to cost you. It's going to cost you. Do you see that? Well, how in the world do we know that God will help us to live this way? To live as, to live among, and to live for? Here's how. Because there was one who came to live as us, to live among us, and to live for us. You see, this is exactly what Jesus has done for us. The Word became flesh and lived among us. His life was utterly distinct and absolutely magnetic, wasn't it? The messiest of the messy and the proudest of the proud were drawn to Him, and they were melted in repentance and joy. 
The result? They came to glorify God. And how? How in the world could a holy God, how in the world could a holy God actually receive outsiders, Gentiles, men and women separated from Him because of their sin? Because He came not only to live as, not only to live among, not only to live for us, but what? He came to die as one, to die among us, to die for us. And the degree to which you see Jesus doing that for you, and in so doing, doing securing that great hope that you do not deserve, well, dear friends, that changes your life to be able to live faithfully in this world. One pastor tells the story of how a particular parishioner ended up at his church. After the sermon one day, the woman came up and said this, I have to tell you how I came to this church. He said, okay. Well, about a month ago, she said, I screwed up big time at work, and I should have gotten fired because of it. But when I came into work the next day, terrified that I was going to lose my job, which as a single mom would have utterly ruined my life, I learned that my boss took the blame for my mistake. And with his credibility and tenure in the company, all he got was a reprimand. So I went to him and I said, how in the world? How did you do this? Why would you do this? I've had a lot of bosses in my life who took credit for the work that I've done. I've never in my life had a boss who would take the blame for my mistake. Why would you do this? The man responded, well, you're a great employee and I really enjoy having you around. I know you didn't mean to do it and I know that you'll be faithful moving forward and we want you around. She said, no, 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 no. Why? See what she's doing? She's digging in. Why did you do this? Why would you do this for me? And he said, okay, do you really want to know? She said, yes, tell me. I want to know. He looked at her and he said this. Okay, well, I'm a Christian. And I go to this church where we talk and sing and pray about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ all the time. We say that Jesus took the blame for me when I wanted nothing to do with him. He gave himself for me, and that changes our lives to go out into the world and not just live in light of it, but also to model it for other people. And she said, what kind of church is that? And he said, one that lives for heaven in this world. That's why I'm here today. What if there were a community of people this side of heaven who were so in tune with who they really were that they lived beautiful lives like this because of what Jesus had done for them in His life, death, resurrection and ascension, this is exactly what He has made us to be and gives us all that we need to do so. Let's pray, brothers and sisters, that God would make us this sort of people. Our Father, Son, Holy Spirit, these words, they're so dense. And yet we long in our heart of hearts to be this sort of people and we ask that you would shape us to be that way. Would you take what is true here, O oh Lord, apply it to our hearts? Would you take what I have messed up, what I have been unfaithful with? Would you have us forget it? We want to know you. We want our lives to be changed. 
and we want to see people come to know you. Would you be so pleased to use us in that task? We lift this up in your name. Amen.